those stories about the years in the late 40s, the House Un-American Activities Committee work, that were cautionary tales about potential censorship. Uh, he finds himself then writing uh, the novella that becomes the novel Fahrenheit 451, really as we're moving into the climate of fear that defined uh, the, the McCarthy era in America. So he's writing in a post-war, polarizing world that uh, caused, for a number of reasons in America, uh, the polarization of our society into very uh, acrimonious uh, name-calling and very hurtful uh, divisiveness. Hello. The voice you just heard was Jonathan R. Eller, director for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. He's going to be talking to Bruce Edward Walker on Upstream later on in this episode. Hey everyone, this is Daniel Minjavar, stepping in today for Mark Vandermoss on Radio Free Action. We've got a full episode for you folks, so first up, we have an interview with Caroline Roberts and her guest Ben DeGrau, Director of Education Policy at the Mackinac Center, talking about education and school choice, uh, as well as previewing the upcoming Education and Freedom Conference taking place at the Acton Institute. Uh, after that, we have another econ quiz, uh, this time with Dave Hebert, uh, talking on tax reform. Uh, sort of going over uh, the president's plan, what's uh, may or may not be on it. Uh, then we end up with uh, Upstream with Bruce Edward Walker as and his guest Jonathan Ellers to talk about Ray Bradbury and his legacy. Uh, really insightful talk on sort of the life uh, and thought of, uh, of Ray Bradbury there. Uh, it's a full episode, so I'm just going to go ahead and get out of the way and... Uh, Get on with the show. So, we hope you enjoy this episode of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. This is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and I am here in the studio at Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, part of Acton Institute's building, and I am here with Ben DeGroe on the phone with me. Ben DeGroe is Mackinac Center's Director of Education Policy. Thank you for being on the show today, Ben. Oh, so good to be with you, Caroline. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about basically your contribution as a panel contributor for Acton's coming event, Education and Freedom. This will be a single-day conference on October 19, and um, listeners can register for the event at acton.org slash events. Um, the event will have a gathered um, expert panel to talk about solutions to problems in K through 12 education and also higher ed. Um, ben, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, kind of how you came to be passionate about education and what exactly you do at the Mackinac Center? Sure. I, I got into this world of uh, education policy uh, and reform. Uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, interestingly, when uh, a time early in my marriage, my wife was working at a free market think tank in Colorado, and uh, I had spent time as a journalist, as a teacher, and I enjoyed both those endeavors, but found neither of them quite the fulfilling uh, vocation that I'd hoped they would be. And an opportunity came to um, research some education policy at this free market think tank on a project basis, and uh, I took my degrees in history and my uh, love for freedom and wanting to help kids and decided uh, that I could build a, build a, a niche for myself and expertise for myself. Uh, and over time, uh, just fell in love with the, the ways of 
the need for reforming education and the uh, and the ability to do that. So uh, I, I moved from Colorado to Michigan in 2015 uh, to take on the, the opportunity here at the Mackinac Center uh, to become the director of education policy, and it's a, a role I enjoy, and um, it involves um, conducting and overviewing, uh, uh, overseeing uh, research in the areas of education policy, and uh, we do everything from uh, school choice policies and school funding, just having an understanding of how the education system works and conveying that to, to people so we can bring the needed changes. Um, I also work with uh, allies who believe in school choice in, in Lansing, other parts of Michigan, and uh, help to coordinate that coalition to keep us moving forward and find ways to expand opportunities for uh, the children and families of Michigan. Great. Can you maybe explain to us a little bit more what you mean by school choice? Because I think we've heard a little bit more about um, school choice kind of in the news, a little bit more as the current Secretary of Education is promoting school choice. But what exactly does that mean for you, and how do you see it playing out in education? Certainly. And those the terms, uh, which I'll often use interchangeably, uh, school choice, parental choice, education choice, uh, convey this idea that uh, families should not be limited to uh, by their means, uh, their financial means to a, a government-run education system, but that they should have uh, opportunities to, um, whether funded by the government or um, through other uh, means, to, to choose the education uh, environment that works best for their student, whether that's um, uh, education at home, whether that's education in a private uh, religious or independent school, whether that is um, a, a public charter school, um, a virtual school that they could do uh, curriculum from home, or whether they're attending another public school, a uh, traditional public school in a different district, just the fact that they're able to exercise uh, their parental rights to choose the best form of education for their child and even customize that learning to, to suit the um, individual child that they're uh, overseeing. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that maybe school choice right now is being um, suppressed a little bit? Because I think a lot of people um, might think that they already have the freedom to choose which school um, to send their kids to. Like, how is school choice being suppressed currently? Certainly. So people um, in wealthier circles will tend not to uh, notice the challenge as much because the public school systems in, in wealthier districts tend to function uh, better and families that have means are able to use uh, those means to purchase a home and exercise residential choice. Uh, but for a lot of families, that's that's just not a financial option. And um, the opportunity for some families have the, uh, the circumstances to um, choose a homeschooling if that fits their family's lifestyle and, and, and they're able to afford that and want to do that. Um, and, and in Michigan, for example, the, re the regulations against homeschooling are pretty, uh, pretty small, so it is easy to do that. But at the same time, Michigan is also a, a great example of where the obstacles against educational choice are pretty high in the realm of private education. We have perhaps the worst constitutional uh, constitutional provision of any state in the country when it comes to limiting uh, the ability of uh, the state, either state funding or um, state tax code, to help families uh, use the resources to purchase a private education. And so, th those obstacles are real, and, and uh, 
uh, in the law, and but they're supported and protected by a wide variety of vested interests, including uh, labor unions and, and bureaucrats who are invested in protecting the, the funding for the system that exists. And so it's an ongoing battle um, that also includes overcoming some of the, the cultural inertia in our, in our country where people are just sort of accustomed to the system the way it is uh, and um, convincing people that we need these policies to help uh, all kinds of families and especially families in need as uh, an, an ongoing challenge in the political realm. Mm-hmm. So I think what the Acton Institute is trying to do with this upcoming um, conference is try to connect education with freedom. What does freedom have to do with education and how can promoting freedom help children um, and education flourish generally? How do you think, like, in what ways perhaps, like, if you can name a policy or some solutions that you see would be helpful, can p- help promote freedom in education and help it flourish? Well, I, I tend to think of it this way. And parental choices or school choices, one, one leg of a, uh, a bigger stool um, of bringing freedom into education. And uh, we know it works because uh, parental choice stimulates parental involvement in education. And when parents are involved and engaged, it helps uh, strengthen the ability of the student to learn. Uh, but there's also other facets uh, of policy and uh, related issues that help to promote freedom in education. I think, for example, of uh, some of the problems we have in the traditional system that's governed by locally elected boards uh, who have to make curriculum decisions or state bodies in some states that oversee curriculum and textbook decisions. Or we've seen this play out with the whole debate about the, the federal government incentivizing states to use the Common Core, and that is the debates about, well, the kind of curriculum or things that are taught in the classroom, um, people are restrained when the system limits their options to just a narrow uh, government-run uh, schooling system. Um, and so this, what this leads to is uh, social conflict uh, over um, issues of sexuality, the way it's taught, or uh, intelligent design versus evolution, or you can think of a dozen different kinds of conflicts. Uh, when you empower parents and give them the ability to direct their funds to support the child's education, and they can they can gravitate freely toward that kind of education that serves their, their student and their family best, uh, we actually see uh, not only does it lessen the social conflict, we have research that shows um, that helps improve students' uh, uh, civic values and understanding their roles as a citizen and becoming uh, equipped to be the next generation uh, of uh, citizens in this republic. So educational freedom is, and, and choice as a vehicle to get there uh, is broader than just the choice itself. It's about uh, the conditions of freedom that it creates and uh, and what that can lead to in the future for our country. All right. Great. Well, thank you for um, parsing that a little bit more for us, Ben. Oh, thank you very much. All right. You can sign up for Acton's upcoming conference, Education and Freedom, to hear more on this topic and hear Ben DeGrove speak on freedom in education and how we can help improve it for the future. You can register for this event at acton.org slash events. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Caroline. All right. This is Caroline for Radio Free Acton.
Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and you're listening to Econ Quiz, our newest segment. On Econ Quiz, we address one economic issue and examine how that issue may be understood or misunderstood by the public. Today, we are discussing tax reform with Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College. Thanks for coming on the show today, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Dave, Concerning tax reform, it's a topic of conversation now, seeing as Trump's recent tax reform just came out last week. What would you like to see happen in tax reform? Perhaps three things that come to mind that you think would most benefit the American family that you would like to see implemented. Yeah. So when it comes to tax reform, uh, there are basically there are three things that come quickly to mind. Uh, the first one are these tax loopholes that a lot of people, uh, particularly wealthy people, get to take advantage of. What these things basically are is a way to sort of legally avoid having to pay some amount of your taxes. Now, in and of itself, that seems perfectly fine, and that's great. But what we see happening is people redirecting their economic activity towards ways to avoid the tax. So rather than doing things that are actually beneficial for them, they're doing things that tr- that basically try to reduce their taxes. So you'll see people maybe um, instead of taking their compensation as income, or maybe as um, well, let's just stick with income. Instead of taking their their pay from work as as income, they'll instead take it as maybe healthcare, because what we use or what we can do with our healthcare is we can claim that spending on our pre-tax income and not pay taxes on on health insurance or anything that we use uh, to pay for things at the doctor's office. This is sort of an inefficient thing because in principle we want people to just do what they want to do instead of having to worry about avoiding their taxes. Basically what ends up happening is you subsidize or you help out the already wealthy people who can afford to be paid in things that aren't money and you harm, essentially, the lower-income population. The second thing I would like to see done is an end of using taxes as a sort of paternalist way. So one thing we like to do a lot in, in America in particular is tax things that we want to see less of. This could be uh, things like pollution, which I probably agree with. We, you know, we could think of taxing uh, carbon or anything like that, but we see people passing things like soda taxes or tobacco taxes, just trying to steer people's behavior in ways that some person in Washington, D.C., or in our case, Lansing, might find you know, personally enjoyable. It seems sort of wrong to use the tax code to push sort of a moral agenda onto people in the country. And a big part of this all comes from uh, my third point, which is that the tax code itself is far too complicated to be of any value to anyone. So if I asked you, you know, how many pages long is the tax code? Most people take a guess and they say 500 pages, maybe 1,000 pages, maybe 2,000 if they're really pessimistic. But the truth of the matter is that the tax code is about 70,000 pages long, depending on what you want to count as the tax code. If you want to count literally everything that could conceivably count towards the tax code, you can easily get over a quarter million pages. That's entirely too long. And think about what that means. In order to be an expert at taxes, that's almost that's 70,000 pages that you have to know backwards and forwards. The idea that anyone could be an expert in this is laughable. And what we see is basically the CPA industry 
which is literally just an industry that exists to figure out how much we pay for taxes, exists and, and does no actual benefit to society. Instead, they're just sitting there calculating how much money we, we individually owe to the federal and state government. These are people whose time could be used doing anything else that would be far more productive. Imagine walking around Macy's with a CPA trying to figure out how to like price your your shirts and your pants. You know, clearly we don't need that in market transactions. But when it comes to government transactions, we need it all the time. It's almost impossible for us to do our own taxes. And a lot of issues with the tax code would be resolved if we got things down to a much simpler form. Kevin Brady with the House Ways and Means Committee famously said that taxes should be able to be done on the back of a postcard. Maybe that's a little too simple, but I feel like 70,000 pages is pretty far from being correct. That seems far too complicated. And if you think about what must be in those 70,000 pages, it can't be things like, you know, what your tax rate is on your income. It's got to be special breaks for special people, and that seems just flat out wrong. We don't give special breaks in the marketplace for people. We charge everyone the same price. And so why do we have all these special breaks for very particular things with the tax code? That's something that I think is uh, abhorrent. It seems just flat out wrong to charge people uh, different prices for the same thing and to try to push people in directions that other people think they should go in. That just seems morally flawed yep. to me. Yeah, it's nice to hear these things broken down into um, simpler ways to understand metaphors and concepts. I'm sure, like definitely for me, and I'm sure many other people out there. So thank you very much for doing that for us today. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. This is Caroline Roberts, and you're listening to Radio Free Acton. Hello and welcome to Upstream, where culture is upstream from politics, and I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. Today I'm here at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal, and we're, we're truly talking about cultural renewal today. My guest is Jonathan R. Eller, who is a Chancellor's Professor of English at the Indiana University School of Liberal Arts. He's also the director for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies, the author of Becoming Ray Bradbury, and the sequel, which is Ray Bradbury Unbound. So, good afternoon, sir. It's a pleasure to be able to sit here and talk to you. I, I sat through one of your two lectures here at the Kirk Center this weekend, and I uh, found it to be absolutely astounding, which is worthy of uh, Ray Bradbury. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you, you knew uh, Ray Bradbury, the, the science fiction and fantasy writer. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's good to be here with you today as well here at the uh, Kirk Center. Yes, I had the great good fortune to uh, know a writer that I had only dreamed of through his works before, you know, as a as a 10-year-old boy in 1962 reading uh, The Golden Apples of the Sun, I think was the first Ray Bradbury book I read. I never realized or dreamed that I would meet him someday. Uh, late in my Air Force career, 
1989, I was on the faculty at the Air Force Academy and ended up, uh, my wife and I hosted Ray Bradbury for a week for a conference in uh, April of 1989. Uh, that's how we began uh, our relationship at that time. He was fascinated by the kind of work I do with seeing how stories and writers evolve over time. Uh, he was uh, really still in the prime of his seven-decade career, and uh, we stayed in touch. I eventually began to come out, work on limited editions of some of his uh, books, specialized editions, and then eventually wrote three books on him uh, and interviewed him and worked with him, usually every spring and every fall, up until uh, he, he passed away in June of 2012. Well, tell me, and, and tell the audience, please, I, I have a fairly good indication simply because I've started reading Ray Bradbury even before meeting Russell Kirk in the mid-70s, mm -hmm. and uh, that was one of the, the major impetus for me to talk to, to Mr. Kirk in the first place. What is the legacy of Ray Bradbury? Why, who is Ray, Ray Bradbury? What is his writing that we should care past his death in 2012? You know, with a lot of writers, that's sometimes hard to uh, define and acknowledge on a broad level. But with Bradbury, it's it's not that much of a problem. Uh, going into the 21st century, it uh, it has been uh, gratifying for us uh, running the Ray Bradbury Center uh, for the last 10 years to realize that uh, his legacy really has relevance in the 21st century in uh, several areas of American culture. I would say that uh, most immediately in most people's minds, he still stands out as one of the best-known dreamers of the American space age and the space age in general and the impulse and the urge to go out to the planets and eventually to the stars. His dreams became our dreams. Uh, really shortly after 1950 and his breakthrough publication of the Martian Chronicles. So as, uh, as a father and champion of the whole notion that fuels the space age, uh, that's one of the enduring legacies going forward for Ray Bradbury in the 21st century. Anytime you have a planetary mission, uh, Ray Bradbury's name surfaces, something Ray Bradbury wrote is quoted in throughout the media, and it doesn't have to be a Mars mission, it can be a lunar mission, even the, uh, the recent uh, flyby missions uh, for Pluto last year uh, invoked again many people in the media talking about Ray Bradbury and his dreams of mankind going to the stars. So uh, one aspect of his legacy is his role in championing the space program. Another important legacy is he's one of the best known defenders of freedom of the imagination. Fahrenheit 451, of course, is one of many stories he wrote, uh, cautionary tales about a world in which we forget the past, we don't uh, continue to learn the value of an examined life if our literature and our historical writings are taken away, taken away from us. Uh, that freedom of the imagination is another important point that continues to be important even in the information age because uh, people are still writing in ways that are vulnerable to censorship, whether it be memes or it would be uh, books online. It doesn't really matter. The cautionary tale he gave us in Fahrenheit 451, uh, an inverted world where firemen burn houses and books instead of saving them is relevant today. And I would say he's also relevant in our century in a related ways because he's also a preserver of libraries. All of his life, he spent all of his life 
working to keep the original library buildings, the old Carnegie buildings in many towns and cities across America. He often would speak uh, uh, at, at libraries uh, any chance he got in his lifetime, a great preserve of libraries because he was educated in libraries. He uh, had an undistinguished high school career. Uh, he got by. He was good in his creative writing classes, uh, um, and uh, uh, but he was really not a classroom learner. He was a he was a visual learner through film, and he was a reader. The libraries throughout his life uh, really were his source of education. Uh, and finally, the precious gift of literacy goes hand in hand with this, and he's synonymous with. All of these things, freedom of the imagination, the gift of literacy, the championship of li championing of libraries, and the space program dreams that we all share. Now, previously in one of your uh, presentations today, you talked a little bit about the influences on Ray Bradbury. And one of them that I was interesting, very interested to hear about was Philip Wiley. I had written an essay on Philip Wiley many, many years ago. Uh, dealing with his, his science fiction stories as well as his nonfiction work, Generation of Vipers. So, talk a little bit about that, if you would, please. Certainly, um, you know, in uh, all all the years that uh, uh, we would work on things out at the house, I uh, eventually cataloged his library uh, there in the home and in his Palm Springs weekend home. Uh, and eventually, uh, many of these books were saved and brought uh, to the Center for A. Bradbury Studies and and also to uh, the Waukegan Public Library where Ray Bradbury uh, grew up uh, to the age of 14. And in the process, he and I would talk quite often about the influences in his life. One was uh, in his reading life. One was, was Philip Wiley. And uh, Ray found he, uh, Philip Wiley interesting uh, initially for the same reasons I do. Uh, Wiley was sort of a Renaissance man. He did so many things. Uh, his uh, early 1930s novel uh, I, with, I think, uh, William Bulmer, uh, when Worlds Collide uh, and the sequel, After Worlds Collide, uh, became really, I believe, the first science fiction movie that, that got an Academy Award nomination for technical effects in uh, the early 1950s. But that's an enduring novel, especially the first one. He also wrote books that, uh, that were sort of pilots into the whole uh, concept of what eventually became in the graphic world uh, Superman and Doc Savage. Uh, and yet also he was quite uh, a journalistic uh, cultural commentator and a well-educated man. And his books were, uh, uh, were uh, really important in the middle of the 20th century. And I think they, they, uh, many of them remain in print today. In about 1943, uh, Ray Bradbury read Generation of Vipers, which was Wiley's uh, uh, broad-based... Uh, his Cree de Car. Yeah. yeah, yeah, his analysis of... of American life and also the Western world in general and how how we sort of all uh, backed into or allowed World War II, uh, the tyrannies that led to World War II to happen. But he was also criticizing things that went on in American culture. He thought such we, as momism. Such as momism. He thought we deified too many things. And of course, um, you don't really want to criticize mom in American culture, but that wasn't his point. You because know? there is American as apple pie. Yeah, there is American as apple pie. But he was just simply talking about our tendency to deify things and how that doesn't always uh, allow us to see through to uh, the realities that uh, define day-to-day -day existence in, in, in our country and our awareness of the broader world. Wiley was always very international in his outlook. Well, when we talk about Ray Bradbury, it's almost impossible to not discuss other authors that uh, he is associated with. And my, my first contact with 
Ray Bradbury's essays was an introduction that he wrote to a collection of short stories by Henry Kuttner, and where he basically says what Ernest Hemingway said, if you, you want to be a writer, write what you have to say, don't speak it. And uh, Ray Bradbury talks about when he first started rubbing elbows with other writers, he would wander around, grab them by the collar and say, I've got a great idea for a short story. This is my idea for a novel. I want to write something this in. And Henry Kuttner takes him aside and said, kid, shut up, just be quiet. And uh, you you have a story about that in, in uh, your biography of Ray Bradbury. Right, and yes, in the first volume in Becoming Ray Bradbury, we're dealing uh, with the, those, those uh, crucial years uh, during World War II, when as a, a, an author in his young 20s, he has mentors within the genre field who are first-rate people. Uh, Lee Brackett and her future husband, Edmund Hamilton, were, uh, were important mentors for him. Uh, Jack Williamson at times, before he went into uh, military service. Um, but the most important mentor was probably Henry Kuttner, who was um, a, a man who was uh, uh, hard to decipher, he was, he was a very quiet uh, person. He was apolitical. He was brilliant. He could write with great versatility across genres. Uh, and in fact, that uh, uh, perhaps was at the root of his tendency to write under many, many pseudonyms. Uh, after he married... Uh, and many genres. And many genres. And after he married C.L. Moore, uh, they would also write together on still other, under still other pseudonyms. Um, uh, he, you know, he was often overshadowed from year to year in, in the critical acclaim uh, of the, of the uh, science fiction uh, editors uh, by this fellow named Lewis Paget, who, of course, was also Henry Kuttner. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but as an, as an advisor to Ray, uh, Ray Bradbury, um, uh, Bradbury would often say uh, when we talked about uh, his relationship uh, with uh, Hank, as he called him, uh, he always felt that uh, he never lived up to the standards that, uh, you know, Henry Kuttner was always pushing him to, to be a better writer. He says, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Hank really liked me uh, all the time. And, I, and, I, and I, my response would be, well, I've read all the letters you saved uh, from him to you and the criticism, and I think he thought the world of you. I think that he knew how good you could be, and he leaned on you sometimes because, uh, you know, you needed to be leaned on in those early days, as you've told me yourself. And uh, there were times uh, Bradbury would uh, c confide that, uh, and, and he made no bones about it. Publicly, he gave a lot of credit to Kuttner. Um, there were times when uh, Kuttner would say, you know, kid, you get into florid prose. You get into purple prose too much. And uh, that's one of your sins. Another one of your sins is you talk all your ideas out to other people. Uh, you talk them out, you talk them out before you get them on paper, and then sometimes you don't get around to getting them on paper, and when you do, they're not going to be as emotionally powerful or have the impact that you, uh, that you need them to have. What I need you to do, Ray, is to shut up and write. And uh, at times he would just rhetorically say, shut up or I'm going to kill you. 
get down and <laughs> type on your typewriter. And this kind of advice would go on back and forth by mail throughout the war. Kuttner was called to military service and served in an army hospital in New Jersey uh, for a couple of years during the war. But they continued to write back and forth, and Kuttner would uh, continue to evaluate Ray's story. And uh, along, with, uh, 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 along, along with Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett, Henry Kuttner finally realized by the end of the war uh, that Ray Bradbury was maturing, and they all gave him uh, their individual blessings. Fantastic. I think we have time for one more question, mm-hmm. and let's go back to uh, Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. and uh, that is the temperature at which books burn. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing with an intense climate now on universities. You work at a university. Uh, we read in the newspaper every day. We, we read the same literature, I'm sure, the same periodicals, where you, you find that there is a tremendous movement afoot. Uh, my, my friend Ismael Hernandez, I think, calls it uh, a dialectical exercise to shut up anything from an opposing point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, universities seem to be the point zero or the point zero of this, uh, this type of movement where what, what would uh, your friend Ray Bradbury say about this? Well, uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, uh, like, like Russell Kirk, uh, I think uh, uh, encouraged the, uh, you know, the, the valuing of the permanent things, the traditional things, and, and they, were, they would speak out against people who wanted to appropriate uh, those traditional values for their own purposes, for their own exploitation, and they would speak out against them. Uh, against people on the far left or the far right who would do this kind of thing. They were very individualistic, went their own way, and Ray Bradbury found himself as a a 30-year-old writer having written stories about the years in the late 40s, the House on American Activities Committee work that were cautionary tales about potential censorship. Uh, he finds himself then writing uh, the novella that becomes the novel Fahrenheit 451, really as we're moving into the climate of fear that defined uh, the, the McCarthy era in America. So he's writing in a post-war polarizing world that uh, caused, for a number of reasons in America, uh, the polarization of our society into very uh, acrimonious uh, name-calling and very hurtful uh, divisiveness. Uh, Once uh, you were labeled as uh, a communist or weak on communism, you were in danger of losing your job in this country. And um, there were many people in the Republican Party, especially after 1952, that were trying to help put America back together and continue to, uh, to keep America as a leading uh, power in the world who were also trapped in the middle of all of this uh, from the extreme sides of the country. I think that today uh, Ray Bradbury would want uh, both sides to examine themselves and to look at the record of legislation uh, that has really slowed to a trickle in this country, uh, doing things to help our people, doing things to continue to ensure freedom in the world. All of our actions are almost paralyzed because there's no consensus on anything, and I think Ray Bradbury would like to see the country at least come together enough to form compromising positions that move legislation ahead. Ray Bradbury felt that you can compromise on issues without compromising your own values. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm talking with Jonathan R. Eller, who is the Chancellor's Professor of English at Indiana University School of Liberal Arts 
and he is also the director for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Bruce. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. Talk to you next week. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Radio Free Acton. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Jonathan Eller, uh, Dave Hebert, and Ben DeGro uh, for coming on the show and sharing some time with us uh, today. I'd also like to thank uh, Bruce Edward Walker for another great Upstream segment, uh, and our producer, Caroline Roberts, uh, for getting us to the end of the show there. Uh, as always, if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found it, uh, and share it with your friends. Uh, hopefully they'll find something to enjoy as well. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like answered or any questions you might have, uh, send us an email at rfa at acting.org. Uh, your questions, we can try to answer them on the air uh, and hopefully uh, get those questions answered for you. Uh, once again, thanks again for listening, and uh, we look forward to, to you next week. This has been Daniel Minjafar for Radio Free Acting.